everybody. Welcome back. 26. Wow. I had no idea that these would be running so long, but I enjoy them. They're kind of fun. Um, so, yeah, I, I had a, just to share a story. I had a really lovely afternoon yesterday with um, David Loy, who um, some of you may know him. I interviewed him not so long ago. He's really an amazing guy, very sensitive thinker. He has this beautiful eco center um, about an hour from here, straight up the mountains. Um, and uh, it's on 180 acres of just extraordinary forested land, really really place. And, and one of the things that came to mind, because we actually took a walk and did a little practice on top of the hill, I want to share a little bit of some of the insights I had in a minute. But usually I start um, with a little bit of housekeeping stuff. Um, Andy's going to post two links. One is the free talk that I did last Thursday with Bob Thurman. Um, very colorful, classic uh, Bob Thurman. His contributions were just terrific. <laughs> He's amazing, this guy. He's a real character. Um, and this obviously is the plug for the program that we're starting tomorrow. Two, three-day sessions, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, this weekend, next weekend, on the second in a series of Bardo uh, deep dives that I started last year. And I'm super excited about it. This one's um, I'm, I'm kind of jazzed about because I'm, I'm drafting some brand new spanking material for it. A pretty extensive riff on the problem of proof. Um, you know, these Bardo teachings, and actually a lot of spiritual claims, uh, they don't fit into kind of Western kind of uh, verification strategies. That's a nice euphemism. You know, categorically dismissed things like Bardo teachings, um, reincarnation, rebirth, you know, non-human intelligences, all these non-material things are categorically dismissed. So I've been doing a little bit of research uh, putting together a presentation on what actually constitutes proof, um, what is real, what is an object. Um, and this, uh, this notion that I I'm kind of borrowing from a friend on the on, on, um, ontology matrix, that what is it, what is it that actually constitutes thingness um, and therefore the ways we know. So I'm quite excited about that. Totally has deep connections to the Bardos because, you know, I've been asked this question a thousand times. How do we know this stuff is true? How do we know it's real? And so I, I've been circumambulating this topic for years, but the last couple of months I've really taken a deep dive. And so I'm excited to share that with people starting this weekend. Um, we posted David Lo uh, Loves, Daniel Loves interview. We posted Yusuf's um, interview. I'm gonna bring him back. He's this Islamic scholar, my new pal out of Baghdad. Amazing, amazing individual. So we just posted that. I'm gonna have a second interview with him to talk specifically about things like dream yoga and the like um, in a week or so. Dustin DePerna, um, that's gonna be coming up quite shortly. He's a, a really compelling integral theorist, very sharp cookie, Harvard um, grad. And uh, just, you'll see a really clear thinker um, what else? Yeah, so, so this thing that, that struck me with, with David, and by the way, we had a, a really, he suggested that we consider doing a program together, which I thought was, well, that's awesome. So, so stay tuned to that. I'm probably going to do something as a little bit of a fundraiser for his center up there. And one of the topics I proposed to him is uh, um, all the spiritual pathologies, all the spiritual traps 
that people slide into because David is really well versed in this. Um, and so things like spiritual materialism, spiritual bypassing, cosmological dualism, all the other traps that, that you know, blind spots, areas that we don't see that we don't even see where we really get stuck. And one of the areas that occurred to me yesterday when we took this beautiful nature walk and sat for a while on top of this hill looking out over these 14,000 foot peaks was how it is that, um, you know, on one level, it's really helpful to practice in a shrine room in a kind of a, a protected and closed environment. But on another level, there's a near, little bit of a near enemy. There are a number of them. One of them is that it can make us a little bit insulated, isolated from the natural world. And so I'm, I'm becoming more and more interested in actually doing retreats, which is a somewhat painful because we can't do any of these right now online, where you're, you're spending more and more time literally just practicing it in the out of doors, um, working to connect more deeply to, to the natural phenomenal world, because on a very deep level, this is one of the hearts of the ecological crisis, right? Is this fundamental disconnect from not only our own bodies, but from a body of, of uh, the natural world altogether. And, and so by practicing more and more in nature, you can reestablish this, this um, deep ecology, this inextricable connectedness to the natural world. Um, and so I speak a little bit about, David, I think it was Richard Love, you know, famously coined this term nature deficit disorder which is a real deal. I mean, one of the recent studies I saw something like most kids spend about 44, 44 hours a week, you know, looking at computer screens, phones and the like. Um, and Richard goes on to this whole big riff, how that's obviously damaging in a lot of ways, but I have played with it taking it a little bit further, how that we don't merely suffer from nature deficit disorder, we suffer from a nature of mind deficit disorder. It's a disconnect, not just from the phenomenal world, from reality, but from ourselves. And so, you know, many great religious masters had their greatest insights in nature. Um, the spiritual literature is just replete with the great founders, sages going into nature <clears throat> to basically connect to reality. So whatever extent you can, and I do this more and more now is, is you know, in addition to these little short meditation sessions done frequently that I do a lot. I'm practicing more and more outside as a way to just, you know, help me stay connected to this world, which is in super deep trouble. And one of the books I recommend so highly is uh, actually David Loy's book. It's called Eco Dharma. He published it last year. This is a really masterpiece. It's a incredibly insightful analysis of, of the nature of our disconnect the illusion of secularity uh, as opposed to um, the sacred world, how it came about largely through implications of the Protestant Reformation. I mean, really interesting analysis of how we de developed this disconnect that then just built on itself and became pathological and is resulting in what we're seeing in the world today. And so um, if you're not aware of it, you need to be aware of it. I thought I was reasonably well-informed, but I've been reading a lot and I realize how little I, I actually do know about the, just the raging danger that this planet is in. I mean, this is a cataclysmic uh, tipping point. In fact, Noam Chomsky uh, yesterday, Chomsky, yesterday David told me that he issued a statement a couple of weeks ago saying that based on his analysis and, and you know, lifelong scholarship, 
the human civilization has never in its entirety been at such a crisis point. <clears throat> Choking up with my, ah, too dry in Colorado these days, too smoky. So Noam Chomsky, who's a, a, a really towering intellect, David told me he released this thing saying, we are in seriously deep trouble. And it, 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 it's absolutely at this, what's called, it's called punctuated equilibrium. I had a conversation with a, a atmospheric scientist a number of years ago from uh, NCAR, which is nearby, the National Center for Atmospheric Research. And I was, I was pressing him, um, you know, is it really as bad as, as we're hearing? And he said, it is worse. And so then we got into this conversation about what's called, what's called punctuated equilibrium in the physical systems sciences, where um, it's a little bit, it, you know, one of the best analogies is when you just pour all this energy, for instance, into, into water. I use this vat, heating up a vat of water in a number of analogical ways. But you, know, you put up all this energy into the system, right? Nothing seems to be happening, nothing seems to be happening. And then all of a sudden, boom, you have this phase transformation. That's, that's called punctuated equilibrium. And in a certain sense, that's what's happening with nature right now. Over so many years, we've been putting in, you know, the, the oceans are this massive heat sink. Some studies show that if we didn't have that, the temperatures on the planet would have been risen something like 97 degrees Fahrenheit. And so the oceans absorb all this heat. And to me, you know, Life started in the oceans and life can end in the oceans. And it's actually happening now with coral bleaching. And again, I don't want to get too, well, actually, you know, I shouldn't apologize because I think we know we, we need to get more preachy about it. Um, we need to do something about it. And, and so, you know, this punctuated equilibrium is what's happening in the world now. All this energy is being put in, heat, 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 and all of a sudden we're, we're just flipping. And uh, it literally, literally can become utterly irreparable. Um, you know, some of the other stuff I read of the species that actually sustain, that don't go extinct, only 1% throughout history um, maintain sustainability. So we have a 99% chance of, of not making it, 99%. And so the hubris, the blindness, the arrogance, the, you know, the, the oh, just everything, the politics behind it, it's extremely serious stuff. Um, and the more I learn about it, the more unsettling it is. So anyway, blah, blah, blah. David writes on this beautifully. His book, Ecodharma, is a masterpiece. He, he actually talks about a major limitation of, of spiritual practitioners uh, is in fact um, not really fully understanding the Bodhisattva vow and not fully understanding our relationship to the world, that we cannot get enlightened if we don't work for the benefit and the enlightenment of others. And so he, he riffs about the maturation or the updating of the Bodhisattva to the Ecosattva that uh, in fact, rightly then starts to criticize Buddhism in a very healthy way. But if Buddhism can't really step up in this age, uh, what relevance is it when the world is literally on fire? If we don't have the methodologies, the wherewithal, the implementation strategies, the activism to change things, of uh, what relevance is this massive wisdom tradition and a time now when the world is on fire. And so, you know, again, I'm, I'm a little bit hot on this topic because the more I read about it, the more extremely unsettling it is. Um, and David is, is, has been an instrumental recent impetus for me to explore it because of the elegance of his work and his passion to this sort of thing. So anyway, that's where my, my mind ran this morning or, or this afternoon. 
Um, happy to talk about this further or anything else as you know what I do with these gatherings which is why I like them so much is I don't have to prepare anything <laughs> I, I just show up and whatever flows through my mind uh, so I just express myself I just express myself to you all so as usual for the next 45 minutes or so um, questions comments offerings challenges and the like um, so please open forum all right, let's start with a familiar face, uh, Dr. Joe Parent. Dr. Joe, nice to see Hi, you. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Oh my gosh, let me look at that picture. Holy moly, Batman. That's, uh, I think that that's, Pelican, that's Pelican Hill on the coast of uh, Newport Beach. Not too shabby. So do you have pictures of some of the affordable housing around that course as well? <laughs> <laughs> the multi-million dollar estates that, wow. that's a god realm man i mean that's that is, right that is, yes it is total god realm anyway nice to see you. <laughs> you you too um i'm sorry i missed the book group i had to watch what some people call the debate um the debacle it wasn't the debate yeah, yeah don't, don't no, get me well, actually you could get me started on that we can talk about it no, i don't want to get i don't want to get started on that uh what i i did want to uh to ask you about actually sure. Sure. Uh, working with uh, some of the dream practice uh, in, in going to sleep. Okay. And what I was exploring was what my eyes were seeing, even though my eyes were closed. Mm -hmm. And I, sent, I experienced a difference between when I was thinking about something, it was almost like I was looking down or not looking at anything. And then if I, if I just looked with my eyes to see. Now you're talking about your eyes, your dream eyes, right? You're talking about your dream no, eyes. No, this is when I'm awake, going to sleep. Okay, okay, okay. So going to sleep with my eyes closed, um, I could either feel like I was, um, my field of vision stopped right there at my eyelids. Right. Or it was like I was looking in the distance. And that was an interesting experience to, to feel like I was looking uh, in the distance at a completely unlit landscape. Uh, and, and it actually moved me into less thinking mind and more um, sense perception. Even though my eyes were closed, it felt like I was looking out into the distance. And so were you, Joseph, were you actually, when you were looking into that quote unquote distance, what were you saying? Was it just kind of well, a, a sometimes uh, it would be little patterns. Uh-huh. Um, like geometric patterns. It, it, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't totally black. Yeah. Because, you know, my eyes were open, my eyes were still functioning, even though my eyelids were shut. Right. Right. And so, so there was texture to it. But I could adjust the way I was looking either to feel like it was right here or out into the distance like the landscape behind me. Okay. Um, and were the, and, were, and it, were the, let me just, I'm trying to get clarity as you continue. Were these objects, so to speak, or patterns that you were seeing, were, were they somewhat luminous, numinous? Were they kind of traced with patterns of light or, or how would you describe the actual um, patterns that you were seeing? Yeah, it was a very soft, Luminous. That's what I mean. It wasn't black. 
Okay. It yeah. was a little bit like what's behind you in the, um, not directly above your head, but over in the corners. Okay. Where we're uh, uh, on your screen that we can see over in the corners where it's kind of like, is that light? Is that not light? You know, right on the edge of that. Okay. And, and I found that when I looked out there, it, it, quieted and settled my mind and it was easier to fall asleep oh nice and, so and you had not really noticed that experience or anybody else had talked to you about those things oh, say the last part again joseph i cut you off say it again i was wondering if you had any experience or had talked with anybody else who had experience like that well yes uh and i've also read a little bit about it if, if again if i'm hearing what you're saying properly that um you know, here, I'm a couple of things come to mind. First of all, our sense of depth perception, even now, like we're, we're awake and we're looking at stuff, right? Even that sense of depth perception, Joe, is, is not out there. Oh, yeah, that's an illusion. Absolutely. Well, perception, you know, perception is creation. So depth itself is a creation. So, so the fact that you would actually have this kind of creative capacity of the mind taking place when there's literally no depth, that on one level that makes sense because that's not what's out there. That's actually what we bring to perception, no matter what it is. So that's one thing. Second thing, uh, two other things. Second thing is that, that when you're going into uh, this kind of liminal or hypnagogic space, that there are uh, some kind of classic um, transformations from the waking state to the sleep state where you, you probably know some of these where, yes. you know, you start to see certain things, you start to see uh, images, replace thoughts. But the one that comes to mind that, that may be simply worth exploring is this whole notion of, you know, these entopic visions, these phosphines, the things that we see um, that, that are really due to things like capillaries, um, you know, leukocytes flowing through the capillaries in our eyes. These can create these types of patterns. The other thing that's very interesting to do if you haven't done it is when you're actually sitting in dark for a while or lying in dark for a while, you know, um, take your glasses off. And it's a very interesting thing to do to actually press right here at the base of your eyes. And if, if you, I mean, you could do it now if, if you actually let your, your eyes kind of settle, get dark, everything dilates, it takes a few minutes. And then you just press right in here. Sometimes you will see a, a quite a dramatic explosion of light. I mean, it really can be like, wow. I mean, amazing. Yes. Like your, your whole visual field just all of a sudden just explodes with this type of light. So two things there. One is, I mean, these are both in the form of a, a kind of an open question. Are in fact these patterns, some, you know, capillary leukocytes flowing through the capillaries. These are what are called entopic visions. Charles Bonnet syndrome is another thing to look at. Um, Oliver Sacks has written about this. In fact, I think he does a TED talk on this. You might want to look that up on Charles Bonnet, Bonnet, Charles Bonnet syndrome, Charles Bonnet syndrome. It's a neurological thing. The other thing is, you know, is that, you know, if, if these things are actually have this kind of numinous, luminous quality, that could also be uh, like, you know, via toga visions, that could actually be the light of the mind itself taking on those forms. So sometimes it's, you know, it's really difficult for me to retrofit what your experience uh, oh, is. But those are some of the parameters, you know, um, that 
come to mind. And, and when I do some of my dark practices and the like, I, I have quite a bit of traffic with these types of experiences. So anything more to say or to add or? Yeah, yeah so, so interestingly that light pressing thing yeah. was a technique used by a guru called Maharaji in the 1970s uh, to, and, and people, you know, he would, do, he would do that and people would say, oh, that's the clear light. And, um, and it was a, a spiritual thing. And somebody yeah. said, you're just, you know, it, it's, a, it's actually in, the, in one of the texts, you know, you see two moons or something like that. Um, I've, in the shower, I, sometimes I rub my eyes and I get tremendous geometric patterns. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. that's not what I was talking about here. It was actually a, a physiological feeling of difference. It's like what our eyes do if we're looking, they they change when we're looking at something nearby as opposed to looking out in the distance. Our eye muscles change. Right. So it was right. a different feeling sensation between uh, one is the feeling sensation when you're um, thinking about something and not really looking at anything. Mm -hmm. then looking at something nearby and then looking at something in the distance, our eye muscles function in three right. different ways. And I found that if I, if I, even with my eyes closed, if I imagined I was looking in the distance, right. it relaxed my facial muscles nice. and nice. it was easier to fall asleep. Oh and yeah. I yeah. I just want to show <laughs> that with people as well. Yeah. That's interesting. You know, to me, it's a little bit like this notion, um, you know, sometimes I metaphorically talk about opening the aperture of awareness, but to me, it has some resonance. And again, I'm just kind of guessing, thinking out loud here to, you know, the open awareness practice where, where you literally, you know, you look forward, you, you decentralize your vision, you, you look to the periphery, which invites a kind of a sense of, of distance perspective. To me, it smells a little bit like that. That, that as you open the aperture of awareness, you know, you're decentralizing away from the wake centric thing. Right. That in itself would make sense that that invites a more relaxed, open dimension that would allow you then to fall asleep. So that makes a lot of sense. The rest of it, honestly, uh, talk to an ophthalmologist. I'm not being a smart aleck here. I mean, talk to somebody who actually works with these types of things. And the uh, kind of, yeah, exactly. From a neurological scientific perspective, and you might get some insights. But Thank I think you. the latter part is what makes sense to me that, you know, when you open, relax, and, and look out in the way, you're opening the aperture of your mind's eye by, in a certain sense, it would be interesting to see what's happening with your pupils, you know, by opening the, the mind's eye and the physical eye are not the same, but they're also not different, right? And so that's why That's why we do things with our gaze to affect our mind. And so there's some kind of dance taking place there that uh, is kind of cool. I mean, that's really something interesting to play with. So yeah, let me know what else you find or don't find in there. Okay, we go. Cool. See you. Thanks, Joe. Good to see you. Um, next with the audio will be Ed O'Malley. Um, I'm muted now. You can hear me? Great. Yeah. Hey, Andrew and Andy. Thank you. Um, so I was going to go back to the climate um, yeah, please. question, but it, well, and this kind of was a great segue because in your book, The Dreams of Light book, you talk about this wide angle vision. Yeah. which is something that I taught, I was, I, I was taught, and I use it in my nature practices as a way to take in all of nature. Right. So, right, we're, we, we go outside and we look here, and then we look there, and then we look there. And the scouts of old, my teacher was a, a, um, 
Native American mentor. And he said that the, the Native American scouts, they go out and if they want to know if something's out there, they do wide angle vision. Nice. And any movement whatsoever is now detected. Then you can focus, then you can focus. So that's, that's an, so yeah, it's a cool uh, way yeah. of expanding. Yeah. And so one of my favorite people was speaking last night, University of Amherst here in Massachusetts, um, uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer. She's oh. a full professor of botany at SUNY uh, Environmental Sciences and Forestry in Syracuse. Cool. She's a native uh, Anishabi and citizen Potawatomi. She's written a gorgeous book called Braiding Sweetgrass. Braiding? Braiding Sweetgrass. Braiding um, or braiding? Braiding, like putting braiding. it together. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, and, and you'll like it too, because if you've read enough scientific papers, you really get that they can be boring as hell, but she she has written almost like an indigenous scientific paper. Like the introduction is about what the uh, grandmothers would describe about how they made baskets with the sweet grass, but they were taught two different ways to pick it. One was picking it by the roots, and the other was picking and leaving the roots. And I'm not going to give you the whole story. It's worth yeah. reading. It's worth reading. And she oh, got yeah. it approved in a PhD project uh, for, at uh, Syracuse. Anyway, oh. the talk she gave last night, it was just a beautiful talk and it was entitled, What Does the Earth, What Is the Earth Asking of Us? Hmm. All right, what, what do we need to do? And it was a beautiful talk and it's worth seeing if you see her, any of her stuff. So is there, at a, the end, parenthetically, uh, is there a link to it? Is there a way that we can track it down or was it more clear? You know, I just tried to get it and because it was posted on Facebook, on the YouTube, I watched parts of it to remember the story I wanted to tell. Yeah. And then I just went back to get it to put it in the chat box and it's right. been removed. Yeah. So I don't know and it's I asked them, could you put it back up? If I get yeah. it again, I'll put it out. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. Please continue. No, no, no. So it's a great presentation. The end of the story, though, she's asking questions and back and forth. And then finally, the moderator says, is there anything you want to share? She goes, well, you know, there's been a lot of talk about what we're dealing with this climate crisis and what do we do? And I had a PhD student graduating and she's, and this is Robin talking, saying, you know, I was at the original Earth Day. 50 years ago, wow. I was there. And she said, I have to apologize to you because I really thought we would have figured it out by now. Wow. And you're struggling with the same things. It's yeah, like wow. incredible. Yeah. And the student said back to her, this is what made her day. The student became the teacher. She said, Dr. Kimmerer, no, this is a most auspicious time to be alive. Everything I do, everything I choose, every vote, everything I do is meaningful. Yeah. It's important. It's an exciting time to be alive. That's awesome. So I wanted to share that because it's just... That's, thank you so much. Yeah, you know, it's in, it's in the spirit of obstacle and opportunity, you know, and again, we can't, we have to be, there's near enemies to both, you know, we can slip into all kinds of pathologies or near enemies around that. But, but there is, in fact, it's really the way we relate to it. I mean, that's beautiful. You know, if, if we take this kind of crisis and, and use it, you know, what do they say? Uh, I, I think it was uh, um, Samuel Doctor, Samuel Johnson 
said, you know, if, if a man is to be hanged in a fortnight, it concentrates his mind beautifully, right? Right. <laughs> so, so if the world is going to go right. off in smoke in a decade, it concentrates our mind beautifully, painfully. And, and so, I, I mean, the I can just applaud the, the sensitivity of the student and, and to realize that this is, in fact, an opportunity. What a gorgeous way to look at it. Um, because otherwise, it really, you know, I mean, I, I work with this. It's so easily um, to capitulate uh, to fatalism, yeah. to just say, you know, what does it matter? We deserve it, right? We've so screwed up this planet. We deserve to be scraped or excised away like a cancer so that the earth can heal itself. And then I realized, well, you know, is that really the best attitude? And so for me, I wrestle with this a lot, the frustration, the anger. And then like with David, that's one reason I so enjoy his company and his books now, um, getting off my meditative ass and doing something. So I'm not just, you know, engaging, looking at my navel, you know, looking for my own personal liberation and FedExing my mind when I die to some pure land. I mean, that's not yeah. the way it works. Yeah. This so is what me, compassion is about. Right. Isn't that? Yeah. And so, and so the eco-sattva model, you know, that really right now, this is, I mean, the Buddha didn't have to deal with this. He didn't have an ecological crisis back then. I'm sure he would have addressed it. So we have to upgrade this antiquated operating system into this modern situation. Um, and that's what David does so beautifully with his work. You know, again, of what relevance are these, these wisdom teachings for our current age? And they have tremendous relevance. But, you know, now is, it's really, it really is a time for activism. It's a time for doing. Um, and everything we do from the plastics and the food and the, I mean, you, you know it, it makes a difference. And, and we, now's the time to act. So anyway, thank you so much for sharing that. I will look out this book and I'll look for, his, for her work. I very much appreciate that. And, and I'll look for the link. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, if you can find it in time, send it to Andy. He'll post it. Okay, cool. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Ed. All right. Uh, next with the audio will be Quilly. Hi, everyone. So I think this is going to be one of those really simple questions. Okay. I am um, I am the Theravada practitioner in your Great. audience. Great. I've been practicing for many, many years and done years of retreat practice. Um, and over my entire life, even be long before practice, I've always had this, um, when it's time to go to sleep, it's time to go to sleep. Right. And I've been very fortunate that most of my life, I don't have to get up to an alarm or anything. Of course, on retreats, yes, there's bells and things. When I'm falling to sleep, it feels almost choiceless. Like I really hit the pillow and I'm asleep. I've lately been doing, um, since I've been exposed to your work, I've been doing some setting intentions uh -huh. um, as I'm falling asleep. But even then... I don't remember if I get to the end of the last one, <laughs> you know, or how many times I go through it or something. And then I really don't like to admit this, but I think there is a little resistance, even on the best of days when I'm awake. Like I kind of wish I were still just asleep. And I, the, the analogy, between waking up, like I, I put so much energy into awakening in this life, the analogy is right there. And I just find that so interesting. Like I want to go to sleep and I sort of don't want to wake up. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, very honest assessment, you know, it, and, and revelatory, actually, because this is where um, I find it helpful to look at spectrums of identity, you know, um, I speak with some regularity around this topic that we, we don't exist along one kind of spectrum of or locus of identity. We exist along a spectrum of consciousness from, you know, from using spectrum dynamics, um, spiral dynamics from infrared to ultraviolet, from, from beast to Buddha. And so we, we have to pay homage to the spectrum of our being, that there is part of us, the ultraviolet Buddha end, that really does want to wake up as longing for the truth. You know, that's what drives you onto the spiritual path. But then we have this devolutionary caboose, the infrared part that doesn't want anything to do with it. And this is really important thing to understand because um, if you really look at it honestly, we all have this kind of conflict of interest going on. But there's part of us that really wants to wake up. There's another part that doesn't want anything to do with it. And so your actual, the statement of this kind of, this lost passion for darkness sleep is really interesting because, you know, Tenzin Wangyal writes about this beautifully, that um, the ego basically recharges its samsaric batteries when it goes to sleep. And this going to sleep happens at many levels. It happens archetypally when we fall asleep at night, which is when really ego puts up do a big do not disturb sign, right? <laughs> right? I just need to get my sleep. It just, it's just this passionate indulgent thing. We also turn some um, recharge our samsaric batteries Every time we go to sleep and get lost in discursive thought, that's actually the moment-to-moment -moment or application of that same kind of yeah. principle. But what you, what you share is, is just really you know, very honest and very spot on, that there's part of us that just wants to stay in, in this bubble bath and the comfort plan. And we just simply want to, you know, Pulna Rinpoche said it very bluntly one time. He said, you know, many of us just simply prefer to be stupid. <laughs> I, I love the directness, you know? We just prefer to not know. And so the question is, well, how do we relate to that? Well, I think first thing is just a quality of lightheartedness, playfulness, metta, maitri, where we just realize that there's this potential dissonance, um, conflict of interest taking place. And then we do one of the central maxims of, of the Buddhist path is what to accept and what to reject. You accept those parts of you that nurture awakening and cultivation. And reject may be a little bit too strong here, but you gradually release, let go of, disidentify with those devolutionary components, the ones that just prefer to keep you asleep. And so this is one reason I, I actually find, you know, they talk about dream yoga as the measure of the path. It, that's the moniker. And so in, in a sense, that's a really good thing because it's revelatory. It actually, what I often say, sooner or later, these nocturnal practices will reveal your passion for ignorance. And that's actually revelatory. That's a good thing because then you can see what you previously didn't see. Um, and so, you know, I'm like you, I, sometimes sleep is just the most delicious, fantastic thing imaginable. You know, it's just like, oh, I can't wait to just, you know, crash out. And so just being aware of that is, is helpful. Um, uh, not being hard on yourself. And then, you know, not too tight, not too loose. You, you continue to strive towards more awakening principles you continue to release and be aware of the more kind of sleepwalking aspects and realize that the spiritual yogas in fact are yogas they take discipline they take work they take effort um and so maybe somewhere in there could be something helpful for you you know if you want to say something else or ask far away but that's what comes to mind 
Okay, yeah, thank you. Thanks for sharing. Thanks, Quilly. All right, next with the audio will be Ted. Hi, Andrew. Hey, Ted. Um, like Joseph, I missed the <clears throat> Tuesday night session. You decided, you decided to just um, do a reverse meditation and make yourself irritated yeah, for yeah, 90 minutes? And I, you know, I've been doing more and more of the reverse meditation and seem to have lots of opportunity for horror shows. Yeah, no kidding. Huh? Um, and last week you talked about what you did in the, the Kavanaugh hearings with the mute button. Yeah. And I, I've been thinking about that, contemplating it, meditating on it. And it, it seems to me that there's a little bit of, um, you know, ostrich in the, in the sand. Ostrich, um, yeah, you know, sure. I, yeah. I just don't want, and you talked about it, you, you're now becoming more and more involved in the environmental issues. Mm -hmm. And I don't think, you know, that was intentional. It's just, it was not on, you know, the radar screen. But can you talk just a little bit about that suppression? Sure. Or that ignoring versus yeah. um, dealing with it. And, yeah, so, I can. So there are a couple things there. You know, the, the kind of, you know, what I now call my mute meditation practice. Again, you know, as you know, it, um, Ted, they're, they're, these kind of near enemies are looking everywhere, right? So here's, here's a couple that are at play. So this particular thing that, that Ted's talking about, if some of you may not have heard it, is, you know, uh, last year when the Supreme Court nomination hearings were taking place and Kavanaugh was up there doing his histrionic thing, like so many other people, I got really into it. And then I started, you know, just getting really irritated, contracted. And, and then just spontaneously, I reached over and I hit the mute button. And there he was still up there sweating, gesticulating, histrionic, doing all this drama thing. But because I had muted him, it didn't suck me in as much. And so the, there's a blessing and a curse with this type of practice, which then I extrapolate to kind of meditative um, ideas that, you know, on a certain level, when we engage in meditation, we can look at um, meditation as muting the mind in the following way. And this is where the trick is. It mutes mind in a healthy way because the display, the idea, the teaching here is that the, the display is still there. You know, Kavanaugh is still there. The thoughts in my mind are still there. But um, my relationship has changed. And that's the key. Um, and so that's how I use it as a practice. The display is still there. My relationship is altered. I'm not, I don't go as, as non-lucid. I don't get so swept away, sucked into it and lost in non-lucidity using nocturnal meditation metaphors. But the near enemy is exactly what you say, that, that you could then, if you, know, if, you, if you do that excessively or you see that in the wrong way, then in fact, it can be perceived as a kind of um, suppression rejection. And, and that's not at all what I'm trying to intimate here. Um, and so we need to, you know, find that kind of balancing point that it's more about pointing out, you know, the phenomenology of capture, how it is that we get hooked, shempa, how we get sucked into things. That, that's why you do it. But you don't run around and just mute everything. I mean, if you do, that, that's massive spiritual bypassing. I mean, that's mm -hmm. a major spiritual pathology. Um, and in fact, just to show you how extreme this is, Ken Wilber shared a story with me where he was talking to some meditation, quote unquote, master. Um, 
And this guy said, you know, I'm basically paraphrasing, but he said, you know, when I die, uh, it doesn't really matter what happens here. I'm going to a pure land. I mean, that's just ridiculous. Um, and so, you know, there, there are all kinds of these shadow elements to these practices. So maybe that makes some sense here is that the practice, the sort of mute meditation practice is in the spirit of just pointing out how quickly we lose it, how quickly we get seduced. But the idea isn't to just run around and, and put cotton in your ears and close your eyes and stick your head in the sand. Not at all. I mean, that's a colossal misunderstanding of, of the meditative path. You know, fundamentally, we, we initially retreat, and this is only initially, we initially retreat because the display is so overwhelming, we get lost on the display. We, we just, it's very difficult to practice initially in, in life circumstance because we're just, we're, we fall into old patterns, we're lost, we just lose it. So we provisionally retreat as a way to learn, to study together. And then you go back into the marketplace and you go back into the world. And if you don't, your, your spirituality is massively misguided and incomplete. Because fundamentally, as, as I was saying at the outset, and David Lloyd's riffing on this a lot, you know, you can't, you can't get enlightened without others. You can't get enlightened without engaging your world. But the issue is then engaging the world properly. You know, do we engage it? Are we actually engaging reality? Or are we engaging our projections, our hopes, our fears, our imputations? So we have to retreat to take ownership of all those projections, all the things that, that we call the world with, then we, we're not really acting skillfully. We're just basically mm -hmm. shadow boxing or shadow hugging. We're just lost in our projections. So you retreat, you mute, you come into yourself as a way to kind of figure out all these machinations that color the world in your likeness, in your image. Then when you've cleaned up, done your work, you don't just stay there, you go back into the world. And that in fact, interestingly enough, is exactly what this program with Bob Thurman is about, graceful entry, is using the Bartle principle at the end of life to talk about exactly this, that we have to die to these old ways of seeing and then take rebirth in our thoughts, in action, in the world, in a skillful way. So this is precisely what a deeper inner rendering of Bardo principle is about. Karmic Bardo becoming is exactly on this topic, Ted. So something like that, does that make sense? Yeah, and what I found that I was doing, and I, I'm pretty sure it was nothing more than spiritual bypassing, was overlaying emptiness on the visual and the audio. You know, in other words, oh, this is just all empty. And so, I, you know, I kept going to the felt sense and my felt sense was, very calm you know I, I yeah. didn't you know I didn't feel tight I didn't feel angry you know the, the next morning my wife said it took her three or four hours to get to sleep and, and you know and I didn't have that but there you go there you go there you go that's a great example right there you know not to, not to criticize your wife or anybody else but you know when when you just get so sucked in so swept away so hooked into it you kind of lose it and, mm -hmm. and on one level, you know, that's a manifestation of that. And so, right. you know, we want to find it by initially stepping back, having this kind of, you know, there's there, another way to say that there's a, the difference between uh, differentiation and dissociation. So we want to differentiate. Um, we don't want to dissociate. We want to pull back provisionally, just to reiterate, to retreat in this fundamental sense so that then we can go back in very skillfully. So what you said is, is actually quite interesting. Um, and you know, good for you for having that kind of 
perspective stance where you can look at that a little bit more dispassionately. You know, another way, uh, what immediately comes to mind is a, a beautiful line from um, I Am That by Nisargadatta Maharaj, where he says, you know, it is disinterestedness that liberates. Mm-hmm. It is disinterestedness that liberates. And so I, I think you can see both the blessing and curse of that statement. You know, I mean, is it disinterestedness where, where you, be, you actually then become careless and not carefree? That's the near enemy of that. And so you can see, you know, there's, there's all kinds of booby traps in this business, and this is a big one. So lots of different ways to talk about it, but that's what, what comes to mind. Okay, Amigo? Good. Thank you. Yeah. Looking forward to this weekend. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be nice to have you. Thanks, bud. Thanks, Ted. All right. Next with the audio will be Katie. Hello. Hi. Hey. First of all, just overwhelming gratitude. I can't tell you how inspiring you are and how you have helped me through this um, Bardo since uh, March 13th. I mean, it's just turned it from a nightmare into like such excitement and inspiration. Um, You know, the stuff that you're interested in, I've always been interested in. And anyway, it's just like, auspicious coincidence and so talk about and i've, I've mentioned synchronicity before so yeah. we've, we've just had one here oh okay where, cool. where my question was uh <laughs> i was gonna say uh it seems like i'm, I'm a student of trumpa rinpoche's and yeah. you know he said that you know it's really just all about proper relationship isn't it and and, and i felt like okay maybe i'm being too simplistic but having done your um open awareness practice that you introduced in the first Bardo workshop with, um, you know, Bob Thurman, mm-hmm. you know, that's kind of been my main practice. Cool. And then listening to everything you put out, you know, I'm in the book club now. Oh, cool. and, and, and by the way, uh, liquid gold, I, I just can't even say enough positive things about that experience. But anyway, so the synchronicity is this, I just wrote down my question was going to be, is the proper relationship that Trumpo is talking about, is it differentiating without dissociating? And then, and here you just talked about it before I even got to ask the question. So, so there you go. I, and I realized that maybe I'm just, because I'm a simple person, I would like it to be simple. And maybe that's why there's all those 84,000, you know, skillful means like people trying to describe the proper relationship. But for me, having a psychological orientation and having been very dissociated in my life because of trauma, you know, this one really speaks to me. Differentiate, because I get all caught up in, uh, I lose myself, I'm one of those codependent types. So really, I've been working on that in Al-Anon for like 14 years. Yeah. Differentiating, uh, not losing myself which is connected with, you know, staying centered in my body. So to me, that, that phrase stands out of all of the things you said, like maybe that's the proper relationship, you know, yeah. uh, differentiating without dissociating, because body is so important to stay in there, uh, which is not easy, um, particularly when you're all post-traumatic stressed aroused. Okay. Um, so, um, so anyway, so, so that was going to be my question, and you already, yeah. it seems like you talked about it, but, but if there's more, like if, you, yeah. if somebody was going to say to you, what is the proper relationship that Trunkbo was referring to, what would you say? Yeah, again, massive question, but a couple of things come to mind yeah. um, that, you know, exclamation points, yeah. you know, one that's definitely worth reinstating, Katie, is that 
we always have to remember um, reality itself is extremely simple. Okay. It's delusion that's complicated. Um, so you're, you're this kind of, you know, the more advanced the practice gets, the simpler it gets. The more advanced the teaching is, the less there is to say. Um, and so your kind of simplistic, simpleton mind, that's actually a really good thing. Beginner's mind, you know, simple, open. Yeah. Reality is so simple. I mean, when, when you actually click into it, you may well come out of that space and, and, and post-meditative and say, could it really be that simple? I mean, really, it's like, can it really be that simple? It is. So that's number one. Second thing is the differentiation thing. You know, this is what, we, when we talk about lucidity, again, the nocturnal meditations, lucid dreaming, and et cetera, lucidity is, is really another, it's just another code word for differentiation. So when you go lucid in a dream, it's because you've differentiated from, you've retreated from excessive involvement in the dream. So that differentiation is extremely necessary. It's super important because otherwise, like, you know, you're in the book club, that's what happens when we go to sleep and get tucked in, lost in the world of form. You know, we're just literally lost in form. So we have to differentiate from that in exactly the way you said, without slipping into the very near enemy of dissociation. In terms of the relationship thing, this is, this is a pretty big deal. Um, and actually, it's, it's coming in the book. I'm pretty sure it's in this book, where on a very real level, relationship is the only thing there is, right? So, so that's all there is. There's only relationship. There, there is no thingness out there. We think that one thing is relating to another thing. That is, in fact, not even true. It's just relationships working with the other relationships. That, that's all there is, is relationships. Not relationship even between things, just relationships, period. As a Buddhist, you know, this is, the, this is paratantra. This is the dependent nature. That's what's out there. And so, you know, in terms of what, what Trump Rinpoche said around this, obviously there's just a great deal to, to comment, but I think that let's keep it simple. You know, fundamentally, the way I take this is, and I playfully say this sometimes, that, you know, meditation really doesn't change a thing out there, but it radically changes our relationship to everything out there. And that's something we have responsibility. That's something we can control. In so many ways, we can't control. We, we actually don't have free will in the way we think we do. We can't control the display of the phenomenal world right. um, to a great extent. We may temporarily be able to muscle it in. And so what we really need to do, are invited to do, is, is control our relationship. And how do we control it? Well, like Suzuki Roshi said, and this is where the practice of open awareness comes in, you don't control it by jamming it into a corral. You know, like he said, you want to control a, a herd of cattle, you don't jam them into a corral, you give them a pasture. And so to tie this into your, you know, practice of open awareness, which is also my main practice now, um, one of them, is the more you open your mind, the more you gain that type of control. You, you control reality through space. Mm -hmm. control mind and reality through space that maxim alone will then inform everything that actually needs to be done within that on i was going to say framework but in this case unframework right <laughs> so so again this is such a colossally big topic maybe i'll leave it at that but this is where you know the teachings on emptiness or teachings are all about relationship i mean that's what emptiness is emptiness is fullness it's relationship um, and so glad you're on the journey in the book because we'll go into all this in quite a bit more detail on that track. But great comments and great contributions. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah thank welcome. You.
Okay. Thanks, Katie. Um, I'm going to read a chat question real quick, and then we can get back to the live. Just one second here. Do we have any dead questions? I keep, I, we keep getting all these live questions. I want, I want a dead question. Right. The live audio. But yeah, maybe we can make it a dead audio. Let's see. All right. This is from Debbie. Wouldn't the flicker fusion phenomenon that creates and reifies thought and experience into a seemingly continuous reality be the do not disturb of the waking state? Oh, what a beautiful comment. Say that again. I mean, that's just spot on. Wow. Say it again. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't the flicker fusion phenomenon that creates and reifies thought and experience into a seemingly continuous reality be the do not disturb of the waking state? Beautiful. Beautiful. Uh, I, I don't even know what to say on that. That's, that's absolutely spot on. For those of you who may not know that term, um, just to unpack this a little bit, really well said. Flicker fusion is a, a kind of a neuroscientific term, perceptual science term, that um, is pretty intuitive once you get the hang when you understand it. It's really what, what we do um, to basically freeze, reify, coalesce a world that is fundamentally discontinuous, empty, disjointed, dreamlike, bardo-like. So in other words, if you take a very close look at mind, you take a very close look at reality, there's nothing but just hiccups, burps of, of um, phenomenal arising. There's no continuity. There's no thread outside of this unbroken thread of awareness, but that's a different story. Everything that arises, arises in this distorted way. A classic analogy, of course, is the, the you know, 16 to 24 frames per second in an old movie reel. You know, um, that we, through speed, speed is what creates the flicker fusion. So there's only these flickers, flickers of light, flickers of reality, atomistic, you know, whether they're the atoms of the phenomenal world, whether the atoms of experience, what are called dharmas, there's just flickers. And when we slow down in meditation, the movie reel slows down, we deconstruct. We deconstruct the flicker fusion, pardon Mama Gemini, pardon the play on words, the flicker fusion that generates confusion. It's very interesting etymological play to fuse together is confusion. So this is the basis of confusion. So we slow down in meditation, we deconstruct, the movie reel falls apart. Instead of, you know, continuous stream, you um, now start to see the disjointed, um, fragmented nature of your reality. And guess what? Guess what is a close analogy of that experience? Your dreams. Your dreams. So this is what the Buddha woke up from and what he woke up to. He woke up from the nightmare of this reified, solidified, continuous, this illusion of flicker fusion. That's what he woke up from. What did he wake up to? A dream. A really a more disjointed, fragmented, parsed, atomistic reality. And so this is a really interesting a way to work again with, with the nocturnal meditations around all this. But I mean, all I can say is beautiful, um, complete, accurate at least as far as I know, accurate assessment of the whole thing. You know, again, Dave, my friend David Lloyd wrote a very beautiful short book. The world is made of stories. It's a must read book. It's really, really um, beautiful. And so therefore, ego itself is just a story with a really crappy ending. It's a really bad story with a really bad ending <laughs> called death. <laughs> so we want to replace that story with a better story until eventually we just get rid of all stories. Um, and so this notion of reality is made of stories, 
this is really um, pretty profound. And that's all that ego is. Ego is just a narrative. So that's why when we get, engage in meditation, <clears throat> that narrative just keeps coming up more, you know, more pages for the script, more material for you as the author. And so we, we, we basically want to interrupt that narrative, that fusion. Um, and of course, for ego that's so, uh, you know, addicted to storylines, it's not always very comfortable, right? Doesn't want to have pages ripped out of its narrative. That, you know, collectively, that big page is taking place in the world right now. The, the illusion of continuity is being challenged, um, you know, reality is being revealed through all the crises that are happening now. You know, the stability, the, the, the illusion of stability, continuity that we had previous to this is actually now just being severely challenged because, you know, these kind of disruptions, these ruptures are actually more in the nature of this conventional reality. So anyway, a little bit of a riff on a wonderful insight. So very well said. All right. We have uh, one more raised hand, and it will be Joel and Michelle. Hey, Andrew. Gr greetings from Michelle as well. A uh, few comments and then a question. Okay. Uh, building on Ted's comment about uh, the reverse meditation, are we uh, set up for our Sangha to do a debate meditation this week? Oh, sweet. Which so, was fantastic. Oh, wonderful. So who's leading it? Who's, who's uh, we leading? were, Michelle and I were leading it. So we met for about a half hour just to get ready and load some practices and give some guidelines and then watched for, watched and then came back and unpacked that and debriefed. So it was a really sweet way uh, for uh, the Sangha itself to kind of share in a reverse meditation like that. So That's I awesome. just wanted to echo that. Um, just as Ted brought that up. My, the main point I wanted to bring forward here is really to honor you for bringing the climate crisis forward. Mm -hmm. I, you know, there's so such reticence among so many groups of people or sanghas or to uh, really embrace how dire the circumstances yeah. are. And, and we, we've brought this into our sangha now for about a year and a half. And it's been gut wrenching, but also really fuel for the Dharma. So, um, you know, thank you for for thank just that. bringing it forward. One comment, um, sure. um, Joanna Macy talking with Jim Vandell, who yeah. uh, who has a brilliant body of work around the climate crisis um, at deepadaptation.com, deepadaptation.org, maybe. Uh, Joanna was saying in this interview with Jem that beings are lining up in a, other dimensions, um, queuing up to take birth on planet Earth during these times. It's such an exciting time in terms of the Dharma capacity of it, which uh, for spiritual evolution, which I thought was brilliant. That's an interesting comment. You know, they this is uh, this also ties into the essence of the Vajrayana. You know, it's it's actually said that of the in the cosmological sense of the thousand Buddhas of this Kalpa, of which Shakyamuni Buddha is just the fourth, there's only going to be several Buddhas in addition to Shakyamuni Buddha who actually teaches the Tantra, Vajrayana. And one of the reasons is that, you know, this kind of nuclear powered, in fact, it's, it's actually what Robert Thurman calls the apocalyptic vehicle. That's his translation of Vajrayana. I love that term, 
I mean, that's Bob's inimitable genius. Yeah. Apocalyptic vehicle. It's as if we need these skillful means are in direct proportion. That that light is in direct proportional in proportion to the dark. And so it's very interesting what you say that on one level, in tantric kind of um, narrative, the greater the obstacle, the greater the opportunity. But only if you're prepared, only if you have the skill set, only if you engage it in in a very skillful way. Um, so yeah, cool comments, cool contributions. And what's the what's the mandala on your ceiling? Is that Kala Chakra? It's Kala Chakra, yeah. yeah we, picked, so. we picked that up in Bhutan. Yeah, um, yeah. Relative to uh, the dream work and the Vajrayana and these times, uh, the apocalyptic vehicle, apo my understanding is that the apocalypse, uh, apocalypse means to lift the veil. That's right. And That's this right. is certainly a time for that. And in that spirit and, you know, with your teachings and background with, with uh, Bob Thurman's and Joanna's as well, just any comments on the timeline for the Shambhala warriors to show up and help? Oh, my God, my friend. Yeah, I how to hold that. I literally, I, that stops my mind cold. I, I don't know what to say around that. I have no idea. I, I was actually chatting with uh, David Loy about that yesterday. I, I can't answer that. I have no idea. Um, yeah, talk about more pain to the dark age. Um, I, I don't know where to go with that, my friend. I don't know what to say. Um, you know, I'm not, they're all, my, they're all my buds. I left that community about eight years ago. So I'm not super plugged into what's happening there. My heart is broken, yeah. um, you know, so I, I can't speak with any wisdom. Or yeah, anything. and I'm, uh, for me, I'm real, I'm not, you know, I've, I've spent time with Trungpa, that one didn't connect for me. Um, sure. I haven't been involved with the Shambhala community per se, but you know, like Bob Thurman talks about the, the Shambhala timeline is a, a couple hundred years in the future. I, oh, that's a little I, bit different. I'm not okay. talking within the Trumpa frame for that. Uh, I, I yeah, so that's exactly, I'm glad you say that because that's different. Yes. Yeah, that, that's more a, out of that envelope. Yes, exactly. So that's, that's important because that's Shambhala within the Kala Chakra. Yes. And that's a different beast altogether. And I, I still I, I say I have the same answer to that one as I do for the first one. I don't know. <laughs> but that's important to throw into the mix because that's the more cosmological. Um, and that's a very politically charged issue um, that I don't even want to go live online talking about. But yeah, um, so for both answers, I have no idea, man. <laughs> Right. Well, uh, let's uh, let's continue to deepen in the practice for the yeah. benefit of all beings. We'll exactly. see you this weekend. Thank you. Yeah. Take care, my friend. See you. Thanks, Joe. Uh, well, Andrew, it looks like uh, we got through everything today. Nice job. Sweet. I love it. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for joining us. If you have the wherewithal, we're going to have a great time with Bob Thurman. Um, at least I think so. That's why I love continuing to work with him. Check out the links that Andy put up there. But between now and then, um, yeah, keep your hands clean and your hearts open, and we'll get together again next Thursday, um, continue our little romp, and uh, very much enjoy it. And the, the quality of the questions just keeps getting better and better, which is so awesome. So bye, everybody. Take care.